Chapter Ten of The Empty Sack by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Ten. So you can do it and get away with it. This was Teddy's reflection as he left the bank on that Thursday afternoon. He'd spent an infernal day, but it was over and over safely. Of the missing twenty dollars, he had neither heard a word nor caught a sign of anxiety. Mr. Brunt had been methodical and taciturn as usual. Always keeping a gulf between Teddy and himself, it was neither more nor less a gulf to-day than it was on other days. As to whether he missed twenty dollars, or whether he did not, Teddy could form no idea. In the middle of the morning there had been a terrifying incident. "'See that guy over there?' Lobley, one of his colleagues, had asked him. He saw the guy over there, a crafty, clean-shaven kilt, and said so. "'That's Flynn, the detective who copped Nicholson, the teller of the Wyndham International.' "'Oh, my God, I'm pinched!' Teddy exclaimed to himself. "'If I had a gun or a dose of poison, he'd never get me alive.' But Flynn only chatted with Jackman, one of the house detectives, laughed, cashed a cheque at a wicket, and left the bank. Teddy breathed again, wondering if he'd given anything away to Lobley. Was it possible that Lobley could have heard of the twenty dollars and been set to try him out? No, he didn't believe so. Lobley had merely pointed out Flynn as a notable character, and gone about his business. "'I shall never forget that mug,' Teddy thought, as he summoned his sang-froid to go on with his work. "'The mug of a guy without guts,' he added, further to define the pitiless set of Flynn's features. "'I sure would kill myself before I let him touch me.' There was no other alarm that day. There was only the incessant fear, the incessant watchfulness, that made him shrink from every eye that danced his way, and which, when off his hours were over, sent him scuttling to the subway like a rabbit to its hole. At supper his father brought up again the subject of the taxes and the interest on the mortgage. The latter would be due at the end of the following week, and the former was long overdue. With the added interest on both he owed two hundred and sixty-odd dollars, of which he had borrowed from old friends a hundred and fifteen. Between the sum due and that in hand there was a gap which he didn't see how to fill. "'We'll get it somehow, Daddy,' Jenny said encouragingly. "'Don't begin worrying.' "'No, Ted'll rob the bank,' Gussie laughed flippantly. Teddy was on his feet, shaking his fist across the table. "'See here, Miss Gus, that's just about—' Gussie laughed up at him, still more flippantly. "'You haven't robbed it already, have you?' "'Mamma, do make him behave.' "'Children, don't squabble, please. "'Teddy, darling, Gussie was only poking a little fun. "'Sit down and have some more hash. "'It's made with beets in it, just the way you like it. "'I was reading,' she continued, to divert the minds of the company, "'of that teller at the Wyndham National.' "'Nicholson,' Josiah put in. "'I used to know him when I was at the Hudson River Trust. "'Sharp-eyed little ferret-face he was. Twenty-three thousand, extending over a period of five years.' "'Often had lunch with him at the same counter. "'Blueberry pie was a favourite of his.' Twenty-three thousand is Teddy over a period of five years?' "'Teddy repeated that to himself. "'He wondered that it hadn't struck him "'when he heard the fellows at the bank discussing the arrest. "'One of them had claimed inside dope "'as to how Nicholson had covered up his tracks "'and explained the process. "'Teddy hadn't listened to that "'because the magnitude of the theft "'had excluded its bearing on his own.' But there it was, forcing itself on his attention, like Pansy's cold nose pressed at that minute against his hand. 
You can have five years leeway and never be suspected. He pumped his father for further details of Sir Nicholson's life, learning that he'd owned his house at Leffingwell Manor, where he'd been a member of the golf club and a churchgoer. At his own fears, Teddy smiled inwardly. Twenty dollars which would certainly be paid back in the course of a few weeks. Already he'd saved seventy cents towards the restoration, just by going without his lunch, with a few economies in car fares. If he could pawn his best suit of clothes, he would have the whole sum within a fortnight. The suit had been bought for twenty-six dollars, and would certainly bring in ten. It would be a matter of dodging his mother and getting it out of the closet in her room, where she kept it in order to regulate his use of it. As supper went on, it was little Gladys who brought up the question which someone older might have asked. "'What would happen, Daddy, if you couldn't pay the interest and the taxes?' "'They could sell us out of house and home.' But this possibility being more than a week off, the statement brought no fears with it. Like all people who at the best of times are dependent on a weekly wage, the Follets had the mental attitude best described as from hand to mouth. That is, once the dinner was secure, there was no will to worry as to where the supper was to come from. It was fundamentally a question of outlook. People used to being provided for naturally looked ahead. But where your most extended view could take you no more than from one meal to another, your powers of forecast grew limited. Doubtless the provision was merciful, for, in the case of the Follets, even the parents felt the futility of dreading a calamity more than a week away. Of all the six, Jenny was the only one with the power of making comparisons and drawing contrasts. She had had, that day, a glimpse of a world as different from her own as paradise from earth. It was no use saying that it was different only in degree. It was different also in kind. It was different in values, in textures, in amplitudes. It was another thing, not another aspect of the same thing. Junior Collingham might be a human being like herself, but in all that was of practical account, she was as widely separated from Jenny Follett as a New Yorker from a Central African. That was as far as Jenny got. Her mind was not given to deduction or her spirit to asking questions. Not having a god in particular, she had nothing to act as a great touchstone to praise or to blame. Some human beings had everything, others had next to nothing. The Follets were among the others. Jenny didn't know how or why, she didn't ask to know. Knowing would perhaps be worse than not knowing, since it might stir rebellion, where now there was only lassitude and resignation. But there was the fact. The Colliums could throw her twenty-five thousand dollars, as she threw a titbit to Pansy, while her father might be sold out of the house and home for lack of a hundred and fifty. Jenny mused, but she did no more. Life was too big a mystery to grapple with. If she tried it, it made her unhappy. It made her unhappy that Max should have been friendly at first, and then growled at her so resentfully. She wondered if dogs had a scent for moral and emotional atmospheres. She couldn't express this last in words, but she did it very well by thought. She often had thoughts for which she had no words, so that her inner life was broader than that which she showed outside. It was one of the things she had noticed about Mrs. Collingham, that she had words for everything. It was like her possession of the house, the gardens, the beautiful things. They gave her spaciousness. Her spirit moved with a larger swing. She could think, feel, express herself strongly, vividly, commandingly. 
while they, the Forids, had to creep and sneak timidly along the back lanes of life. "'That's why I'm doing it,' she reasoned with herself, "'because I'm in the back lanes of life. I can creep and sneak along, and I can't do anything else.' It was all very well for him to jostle me with his lean iron flank and to growl, but he didn't know what twenty-five thousand would mean to me. Along the line of these musings, Teddy said suddenly, "'Saw young Cole today. Came up and spoke to me. Not a bad sort when you get to know him.' Jenny felt a little faint, but no one noticed it, because Gussie threw back the ball. "'Tell him to come up and speak to me. Any afternoon at half-past five, when I leave Corinne's. "'Say, Gus,' Gladys giggled, "'wouldn't you like a guy with all that wad waiting for you every day "'when Corin shuts down the lid? "'My, the ice-cream sodas he could blow you to!' "'Lizzie was pained. "'It seemed to her that the process of Americanization "'which her children were undergoing "'lay chiefly in the degradation of their speech. "'Gladys, darling, can't you find proper words to—' "'Oh, Mamma dear,' Gladys complained, "'do put a can on all that.' "'If you're a cash girl, you've got to talk English, "'or the other girls will whizzy you round the lot.' "'Young Cole's going to South America,' Teddy informed the party. "'Sails with Huntley on Monday.' "'Gosh, wouldn't I like to be going, too?' "'Say, Dad, why do some fellows come into the world "'with the way all smooth for them "'and their bread buttered in advance?' "'Because,' Gussie declared loftily, "'they're clever and get ahead like Fred Ingalls.' "'I bet you that if his father wanted his taxes and the interest on a mortgage, "'he wouldn't have to raise the wind among his old friends. "'Fred would be Johnny on the spot with the greenbacks.' "'Teddy could only gulp, hang his head over his plate, "'and choke himself with hash as he muttered to his soul, "'God, I'll shoot that Fred Ingalls if I ever get a gun.' "'And just as if she knew that Teddy needed comforting, "'Pansy sprang upon his knees, "'pushing her face up along his breast till she could lick his chin.' Twenty-four hours later, Max was vexing his soul with the difficulty of transcending planes. There was so much of which he could have warned his master, now that he had got him back from Long Island. But there was neither speech nor language, neither symbol nor sign, to make human beings understand anything but the most primitive needs and concepts. Obedience, disobedience, hunger, thirst, sorrow, joy. These sentiments could be put over from the dog-plane to the human plane, but without shadings, subtleties, or any of the marvels of intuitive knowledge by which dogs could enlighten men if men had open faculties. To another dog he could have flashed his information in an instant, whereas human beings could only seize ideas when they were beaten into them with verbal clubs. Edith and Bob voted Max a nuisance, because in his agony of impotence he pranced restlessly about the bedroom, lashing his tail in one tempo and pointing his ears in another. Edith had come down from the Berkshires on hearing by wire that Bob was to leave next Monday for South America. She was seated now on the bed, her back against the footboard. "'What I don't quite see,' she was saying, "'is how you can be so sure.' Bob looked at her as he stood taking the studs from the soft-bosomed evening shirt in his hand to transfer them to the clean one lying on the bed. "'How can you be so sure about ailing?' "'Well, that's a little different.' Ernest speaks our language, he has our ways. Dad and Mother make a fuss because he hasn't a lot of money. But that means no more than if he didn't wear a certain kind of hat. He's our sort, just the same. And I'm her sort. I, I can't explain it to you, Edith, but she needs me. How do you know she needs you? Has she ever admitted it? 
I haven't asked her to admit it. I can see. Yes, that's all very fine, but did it ever strike you when Hubert's been talking about her that— Bob made an inarticulate sound of scorn as he inserted the cufflinks into a cuff. Oh, Hubert's a top-hole chap, all right, but, my Lord, Jenny wouldn't look across the street at him. But he might look across the street at Jenny, and with you so far away. He smiled with something like a wink. Don't you fret about that. She's the kind of little woman to be true. You can't mistake em. We've known a good many men who have mistaken them. You haven't known my kind to make that sort of tumble. Love can be blind, but instinct can't be. Edie, I believe so much in that girl that if she was to play me false— But there, good Lord, she couldn't. So why talk about it any more? See here, he added, if you're going to change your dress, you'll have to scuttle, and I must get into my waiter's togs. Meanwhile, Dauphin's struggles were of another order. It was the hour of the day which he was accustomed to spend with Collingham, and to spend it undisturbed. In this lovely spring weather they strolled about the gardens, peeped into the hotbeds, dropped in aimlessly at the stable or the garage, exchanged odds and ends of observation with the men working around the place. After this they returned to the house, where, upstairs, in a comfortably masculine bedroom, the man made changes in his outer fur, while the setter, less concerned about trifles, stretched himself out on the floor and blinked. It was a restful time, suited to a mind which, after the stormier years, was growing more and more content with material prosperity, and to a heart that was always content with its master's contentment. But, of late, poor Dauphin had been painfully buffeted by waves of agitation. They emanated from his master like circlets round a stone thrown into a pool. When his master's wife came into the scene, the conflict of forces was terrible. She was not straight with her lord. She was using him, hoodwinking him. Dauphin would have sprung at her throat had it not been for the knowledge that, were he to do so, he would be beaten and kicked by the object of his defence. No, you couldn't deal with human beings sensibly. The wise thing to do was to stretch on the floor and pretend to snooze while they fought their own fight. They didn't precisely fight their own fight just now. Collingham merely accepted terms. He was picking up his evening jacket from the bed on which his valet had laid it out. Junior, dressed exactly to the mean between too little and too much suited for a family dinner, across the threshold of his room, where she stood adjusting a fall of lace. "'As I told you yesterday after she went away, she's just what you'd expect from such a girl. Certainly no better, and possibly a little worse. She's a mousy little thing, with a veneer of modesty. But mercenary isn't the word. It's just a question of money, Bradley, and if you'll leave it to me to deal with—' "'Leave it to you to deal with to the tune of twenty-five thousand dollars,' he said morosely, pulling his coat into shape round his shoulders as he looked into the long glass. "'Well, that's only half of what it might have been. I thought at one time that we might have to make it fifty thousand. He was not sure, but he thought she finished with the word again. If so, it was uttered too softly for him to be obliged to take note of it, so that he merely picked up a hairbrush and put another touch to his hair.' She was now at work on the great string of pearls, which, to keep them alive, she wore even in domestic privacy. Her object was to get the famous Roehampton pearl, from the late Lady Roehampton's collection, 
which had been the seal of her reconciliation with Bradley fifteen years earlier, to get this jewel right in the centre of her person, to make the string symmetric. "'My point in bringing it up now,' she said, speaking into her chin as her eyes inspected the long oval of the necklet, "'is to remind you that you don't know anything. You haven't seen Bob for nearly a week, and after Monday you won't see him for two or three months at least.' "'Don't let him suspect that you've anything on your mind. "'As a matter of fact, you haven't, except what I told you, "'and I may not tell you everything. "'And that may be what I complain of. "'You can't complain of it when I give you the results, now can you? "'You don't complain of Mr. Bickley, "'or ask him for all the reasons he has for saying this or that. "'You leave him a free hand, and are ruled by him. "'You've often said it, "'even when your own preference would be to do something else, "'as it was in the case of this man Follett.' "'Now I only claim to be the Mr. Bickley of the family.' "'That he had rights as father, Collingham was aware, "'though he was shy of putting them forward. "'Having left them so much in abeyance, "'it would have been as ridiculous to emphasise them now "'as to dispute Bickley as efficiency expert at the bank. "'Moreover, the uneasiness which seizes on a man "'when his chickens come home to roost "'inclined him still further to passivity. "'If Bob was knocking about town,' as he seemed to be, he might know about his father what Junior did not, or presumably did not, that the woman who received the fifty thousand dollars had had her successors, and that even now the line was not extinct. What he knew of amusing incidents of fathers and sons meeting on this ground, any such contretour in his own case would have shocked him profoundly. Junior might go beyond her powers in prescribing his course, and yet, for a multitude of reasons too subtle for him to phrase, seemed wise to follow what Junior prescribed. So the family dined and spent the evening together as tourists walk across the Solfatara Carita. The ground was hot beneath their tread, and here and there a whiff of sulphuric vapour poured through a fissure in the crust. But only Max and Dauphin sensed the volcanic fire. Later in the evening, Junior knelt at her prie-dieu with her armorial books of devotion. "'And, O oh, Heavenly Father,' she added to her usual prayer, "'have mercy upon that poor erring girl, and help her to repent. "'Grant that my son may extricate himself from the toils in which he is entangled. "'Enable my daughter to see that her duty lies in the station of life "'to which thou hast been pleased to call her. "'Give my husband the wisdom to seek advice, and to follow it. "'Lead me with thy counsel, so that I may do what is best for all my dear ones.' Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Having thus poured out her heart, she rose, feeling stronger and more comforted. End of chapter 10